This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! And now, it's time for Coach Hogg's Locker Room. Good morning, good morning. It is a brand new month, month of May, and here we are in the Warthog Command Center, the manly Warthog Command Center inside the Melvin Law Studio. Melvin Law, with 50 years of experience, the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators, Melvin Law won't back down. And make sure you prevent security system package theft. They got a program to do that. Worry less with crime prevention. Have a doorbell camera. Contact them today at CP. SS.net. And thanks as always to our uh, really great hometown High Springs attorney, Maurice Steve McDaniel, Army veteran of the uh, Special Forces, airborne, whole bit. I kind of look up at my notes here on my board as you see me looking up. He uh, sponsors our mugshot list, which is uh, looked at by about 45,000 people a month, if you can believe it. Well, we're at Coach Hogue's locker room for a while this morning. Coach Hall's locker room is not broadcasting today from the Spurrier studio, but it will be next Monday. We're going to have a great show next Monday. I'm going to have John Magnuson with me, who is in the Hall of Fame umpire. He's, a Hall of, in the, you know, he's going to be doing some special things here in the community about umpiring. I think umpiring is very fascinating because one of the things I want to talk with you about is what's going on in the baseball, softball world since um, there's so much money invested in it here locally. You know, I'm told that the new saw a baseball facility at the University of Florida cost $65 million, and that those $65 million are paid for mostly by private donations, and that the facility is debt-free. Kind of mind-boggling, really, if you think about it. But the problem with the game for me, and I played the game once upon a time, I was a pitcher, I guess the reason I was a pitcher is because that way I wouldn't get bored. Every other position in bore ball, as I call it, you stand around a lot and you wait for something to happen. And you can languish quite a while, particularly if your pitcher is really humming good. You're just going to stand around, get a suntan or whatever. Uh, the pitchers really and the catchers are the two elements that make that game go. With of the two, I would have to say the, uh, the, the catcher is probably more significant because he covers everything. And in softball, of course, it's a she covers everything. But those catchers are really helpful. They know how to help you control the ball, where to put the ball, where the batter's doing. Fudge, perhaps, maybe, although always not successfully on maybe the strike zone. But um, so I've got quite a little bit of experience with that game. And I'm not a fan of it. I just, I'm a fan of softball, which I never played. But I had a lot of friends who did in the summer farm leagues. And I saw the king in his court from Budweiser. So I know what it's really like to be around great softball players, male and female. But one of the things that's wrong with baseball has been covered, and I think I may have talked with you about this from time to time, is the pace of it. It is uh, hopelessly elongated. And I have to think that once upon a time, that served a useful purpose. I remember as a, a little kid uh, listening on the radio to the Chicago Cubs and later on watching of uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers and those teams that were in these big cities where summer came in a very all too short, as Shakespeare says, in all, all too short a lease. And these northern climates of uh, summer very briefly leases from the rest of the uh, year. Uh, the typical season is that of winter and, and the chilly fall and even the chilly spring. So this summer, traditionally, before they started moving these teams around, uh, really meant a big thing. And I remember watching my grandfather sleep through a lot of the baseball games. 
But he always knew the score. It was one of the mysterious things. I'd ask him what the score was. He'd know, but he dozed off in his big overstuffed easy chair. And it was a wonderful thing to do in the afternoon for these people, his generation, was to listen to uh, these teams that would come, in his case, out of Chicago, the White Sox or the uh, uh, Chicago Cubs. And, of course, there always have been the Yankees and the Red Sox. Uh, but the Dodgers really were uh, a, a frenetic bunch of people supporting them. So there was probably an argument then for making the game maybe slow because then you got to enjoy the summer afternoons, the the, the way in which the summer was out pacing through uh, its, its short lease in the, in the northern states. But, you know, we've moved the, 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 the teams around. You know, I was around for Dizzy Dean and those people were great. Pee Wee Reese, great, great uh, verbal guys who had a twang with the language were very special. Of course, with the Cincinnati Reds, and I was a fan of Ted Klubuski. Um, We had also Frank Robinson come in as a rookie, later Vita Pinson. So uh, Roy McMillan, uh, these people I remember so well. So... I don't really know any of these guys now in the big leagues. I know f- not very many in the college leagues, even though I've been out to a couple of the games in a $65 million stadium here. But um, Major League Baseball, uh, there's a big article in the Midnight Auto Yardie, which I brought out way back uh, about a month ago, about the need for some sort of pitching clock um, and some sort of restriction on defensive shifts. I I don't know. This is all, you know, controversial, I understand. Um, but how do you how do you make the game go a little faster? How do you keep the um, the um, flies from buzzing around you when you're taking a nap? Um, do you do you just go ahead and make the designated hitter a permanent feature and we're uh, how are we going to work all this, how are we going to fundamentally keep the game what it is and and yet speed it up. Uh, much of this is, of course, because of television, that these sal- salaries are available because we go look at the actual stands. Uh, there are not that many people in the seats. Now, here locally, uh, we've got a real problem with the University of Florida facility, and that parking is woefully inadequate. I heard uh, some very serious complaints from some big boosters here who have supported baseball locally here with UF for quite some time complain about the fact that you can't park. Uh, you, you know, they often schedule softball at the same time, and it, it, it's just no parking. And if you take a look at the fans in these college games, they're quite often senior citizens. They have the wealth to go pay $1,000 for the seat for a season. Um, they, they, they have the time to do it. They, they don't, in this town, have a lot of other sources of entertainment and college sports is a very good source of entertainment in a college town, but they can't park. And there are, I'm told there are about 7,000 people in the University of Florida baseball facility. There certainly aren't 7,000 parking spots out there. So they have to go all the way down to the Phillips Center and hope that the tram comes. I've heard there's only a couple of those shuttles. So you have a problem, so-called softball lot fills up very quickly. Supposedly, you can only talk, uh, park there if you're going to softball. Uh, then you have all around the corner a proliferation of sports that have caught an interest of the public. You have lacrosse, soccer uh, going on around the corner in the other fields. So you've really got some situations here. And I'm kind of mixing apples and oranges. I'm mixing college baseball with, with professional baseball. But the two suffer, I think, from the same lack of intensity. Um, there is a rise in analysis of this and all the rage nowadays is data analytics. Uh, they uh, become very, and of course, baseball we know is statistically loaded with data. Uh, I know people who can uh, give you the down, and not the down and distance, but the averages and this and that of every single play of every single game. And, and there is a lot of strategy I think more so in softball from what I've watched than in baseball because there's a lot more base stealing in softball, a lot more bunting. Very seldomly see bunting in 
in uh, baseball. What brings the crowd in is the home run. So you have uh, less emphasis. Here's a real riddle to both sports, softball, baseball, and that—that um, that is who is the starting pitcher. And uh, having been a pitcher, I can tell you that um, there's a lot of trust placed in you as a starting pitcher. And they think you can carry that game for quite a while and not have to use up relief pitchers. But when to change that pitcher, too, and to read the tea leaves, so to speak, is an art in coaching. And a lot of these guys don't have it. Um, they pull their pitcher too soon or they pull the pitcher too late or they just simply don't have the great uh, uh, kind of ratio of reliever to pitcher, starting pitcher. And uh, so really the emphasis on a starting pitcher is um, probably losing its luster. See, you see the starting pitcher with, with some skill will carry that game for quite a while. And to start, the only way that starting pitcher can carry that game is to shut down the hitting. So if you shut down the hitting, where's the excitement? So that's become a kind of a dilemma. There's some discussion, believe it or not, about, hey, let's make the starting pitcher not the starting pitcher, and let's ramp up the, the, the interest in the fan involvement by getting some crack of the bats right from the very beginning because the paradox here is a, a, a starting pitcher and I'm, I'm told that the pitcher that beat Florida yesterday from Kentucky was very, very good. Well, then you factor in a couple of rain delays. And my golly, you have got a recipe for people going home to take a nap if they're not always taking one. So this whole thing of pitching also is being questioned about, do we need to force pitchers to work quicker? Um, that, that shift would require teams to station um, you know, if you did that, you might have fewer strikeouts and more balls in play, and that would require teams to shift two infielders to each side of second base uh, with all of them standing on the dirt. It would incentivize contact with more battered balls turning into hits, as well as allowing for more diving plays in the field, which is one of the exciting plays. Of course, the collision or potential for the collision at home plate is always an exciting play. So um, whether or not baseball is going to be able to adopt some changes to keep the fan interest, even though paradoxically the salaries of the players is going, they're going up and up and up and up. And there's fewer and fewer people in the stands. The other thing that's going on in Coach Hogg's locker room that of always of interest and will be for the next foreseeable future, of course, is uh, NIL. And that is now we have a uh, uh, release all the players to profit from their prowess, if you will. And one of the uh, uh, concerns is, and this goes back again uh, to the Midnight Auto Yard, where I've kept a few of these articles on sports and been thinking about them, is uh, now you're able, re re able really to gamble on college sports. Now, gambling has been a no-no forever. You know, the, the quintessential example of this is Pete Rose, uh, banned for life from betting on his own team. Um, but the NCAA, which has been pushed by state legislatures and federal courts, um, has provided maximum fle flexibility for the student athletes to make decisions about their own name and image and likeness as they see fit. And so uh, you'll see, for example, that Gonzaga, for example, uh, is, uh, uh, is, is uh, involved with uh, uh, ads by players that are it has uh, casinos, namely the Northern Quest Resort Casino, which in turn has sponsored Gonzaga for more than 18 years and pays over six figures annually for the sponsorship. And now uh, the casino doesn't accept wagers on college athletic events, but we have ads with players in front of Northern Quest Casino sports. So sports betting became legal in Washington State in 2020, uh, which is... Um, uh, you know, one more complication to what is going on with the, the name, image, and likeness. Nobody has yet figured us all out and where it's going to come uh, to an end or a logical conclusion. Um, casino sponsorships with schools, uh, players um, sponsoring themselves in front of casino logo, 
um, why not? I mean, school, the casinos sponsor the schools. Why not the uh, schools, uh, uh, the, the players be associated with the casinos? It's really a slippery slope there. It's uh, getting close to total head-spinning deregulation, as one writer called it. Uh, the athlete endorsement uh, deals are quickly evolving, along with the gambling companies in college sports. So this is something that is still remains to be sorted out. I don't know what the answer is going to be, except to, to wait and watch. We've already seen uh, the influence of name, image, and likeness here, I think, on our University of Florida basketball team. Combine it with the transfer portal, and you have some chaos right now and a real juggling uh, act for the coaches uh, to try to manipulate all this to the advantage of their ultimately their season record. The other thing about name, image, and likeness is the concern that all the gains made by Title IX for female sports will be er erased or encroached upon by the collective money being spent on these football guys because they bring in the most money and the most attention. But I don't know if the fan in the stand will care. The fan in the stand only cares about one thing, and that's the violence of the football sport. Now, having watched the NBA, I'm really fascinated, for, I mean, as I've never been before, with the name of the game now in the NBA. It is run and gun. Boy, it is the old type of game that we used to play on the playground. Uh, we had more fun. I learned to play the basketball game. I lettered in basketball in high school. I was a very, very good shooter. I learned to shoot from playing on the hard court basketball public courts with some of the best players in, uh, that would come over to that. I'd always try to find the best court and, and you know play with those guys. And if I could, play with older guys. And I learned my particular niche was I just didn't miss. And I studied, studied, studied how to do that, how to relax the wrist, how to, how to and, and, and you know, it's much like serving in tennis. And you have kind of a floppy whip action at the top of that ball. You release it, it should be spinning backwards. It should be arcing just right. There's a lot of guys I watched. I watched Sayugo Green out of Duquesne who shot a two-handed shot. And this, this is uh, something that you just grow up with as a kid. Uh, on the on the playground on on the uh, on the public courts, and we have got guys in the NBA now. You watch these NBA playoffs; they are fantastic athletes. They are playing playground basketball, what I call playground basketball. Boy, I'm telling you, it's rough too. You better bang down there and be able to hold your own because you're going to get shoved around, pushed around uh, by big, big, strong, fast men. The agility and and, and ability of these guys is phenomenal, and every one of them can. Uh, sprint that court no matter the size instantaneously. And they steal dribbles from each other, steal a ball from each other. Uh, and it's down to the wire. Uh, you watch the Memphis State, uh, the Memphis teams and the Boston Celtics. Right now, I'm leaning towards the Boston Celtics. And amazingly, Al Horford's still in there. He's doing well. He hasn't aged a bit. Of all the guys who are around here, um, uh, you know, the, the Owl is still the one still – uh, productively engaged and now at a championship level again, this time with the Boston Celtics. But once again, it's the pace of the game. And I think that's what's going to have to happen. The baseball perhaps uh, is to increase the pace of the game, unless we're going to go back to leisurely summers, uh, languishing in a short-lived uh, 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 season. But we don't have that anymore. We've got teams inside in Tampa. Uh, we've got all kinds of different versions of it. So uh, perhaps that won't work. And we've got television has kind of corrupted it a little bit, if you will, um, you know, taking away the hometown crowd and the razzing of the umpires, which is all part of the game. I don't know of any more uh, audience participation in a sport than you find in baseball or softball, uh, particularly baseball. A lot of heckling going on. It's all part of the game. And uh, when you do dry that up and put the t a game on TV, you take away some of the excitement. So if you want to watch, and you have that heckling going on in the NBA too, by the way, people are very close to the action. So uh, that's kind of Coach Hogg's locker room today. I think what the theme of all these things is, is how do you maintain the intensity of these sports? How do you keep uh, us on the edge of our chair? Because that's the thing. And of course, no one knows where a name, image, and likeness in the transfer portal is going to take us. Uh, it's going to take us into college betting on sports. It seems as if that's already there with us, and it's probably going to ramp up even more. Uh, 
we'll 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 see. We've got a a, a, a war all the time for, of course, for between Coke and Pepsi Cola. Um, but who's going to get the the uh, contract and have that beverage in the uh, in the stands for the Florida games? Now it's Pepsi Cola. It used to be Coca Cola. I was handed uh, four cans of Pepsi Cola going out of the softball game the other day, and, and it had some special brand on it associated with the University of Florida. So we're, we're really moving into a world of total commercial. The amateur thing is, I don't know, it's really kind of vanishing, is it not, from the world of sports? But uh, we'll see how it plays out. And maybe it's never, some, some of the caustic fellows who've been around a while, so well, it was never really amateur. Everything we're doing now was always done under the table. We just brought it out from under the table. But um, we'll see. The other thing that's kind of interesting is now that all these tickets are on your phone and it assumes everybody has a phone. That's another amazing assumption. Um, we don't have any more paper tickets and the ability to scalp has been greatly reduced. I have a couple of friends who are, I don't know how else to put it, uh, are professional scalpers have made quite a bit of money doing this quite well and travel around to all these venues, all these games, going to Las Vegas, out of Las Vegas, oh, this game, that game, this game. And it's been the ticket business has brought them handsome six figures a year. Uh, talked to them the other day. Some of them uh, can't do it with these phones. I suppose where there's a will, there's a way. They'll figure out perhaps some way to do this. But you think about it. How are you going to scalp a ticket when – you get the ticket from Ticketmaster, then you put it in your wallet, and then you put it uh, in uh, the, uh, up against the scanner when you enter. And the problem with that, by the way, is once you've scanned that, you can't exit the facilities. And so there you are. If you've forgotten the raincoat or you don't chilly, you need to get a blanket. But once you have been scanned on that phone, then that eliminates the possibility of reentry, uh, and then therefore any kind of diminishing scalping too. Uh, you can't go out. You're just going to have to buy, perhaps buy a blanket there to concessions in the stadium. So there's a lot of changes that are going on. Some of them are out of kind of out of sight. So uh, uh, we, we we were just trying to cover here in Coach Hall's locker room some of the things that are going on in the in the world of sports, which are really not taking place in an isolated venue. They don't list it. They don't live in isolation. So. The other thing I want to mark out to you is our, our Tim Walton, our coach here, been here, I think, 17 years at the uh, University of Florida. He's a softball coach, has hit, has won his 1,000th game. And I think he did it the fourth fastest of anybody to do it. That's quite, a, that's quite an accomplishment to win 1,000 games. So he's probably going to be there among the uh, leaders of this coaching world for quite some time. He has his own challenges right now. Um, pitching is everything in softball, and uh, it can it, you, you know you got he doesn't have the really stellar, outstanding um, uh, pitcher that he's had in the past when he won the national championship. I mean, he's got some pitchers, but you know we don't have um, uh, Montana uh, uh, Morgan, I think is her name um, from Alabama, who really is probably one of the top pitchers in the country, Montana. Love that name. Um, we, we, we probably are notched below that. But through, I watched him make his decisions yesterday exactly about what we're talking about is when to start, whom to start, and when to relieve. And I thought he had that down to a T. And then uh, the, the game won extra innings, I think, in the 10 innings. And finally, we won on a home run uh, by one of our, our uh, great players who plays right field, Cheyenne. So uh, that, that is um, uh, most interesting about how Coach Walton has accomplished this in, uh, in such a short time, relatively short time, that he's accomplished it. So um, Coach Hogg's locker room. By golly, uh, we'll have a great Coach Hogg's show live next week from Spurrier Studio with a, a Hall of Fame umpire. So you don't want to ever miss that show coming up. We'll push it as we get closer. Um, locally, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, some sad things. Uh, Clinton Portis's house is, uh, let me just back up for a moment and tell you that we've been covering Clinton Portis for a while. Uh, Clinton Portis was the great GHS star uh, that um, uh, went to University of Miami and then went on to the Washington Redskins. 
had about a $45 million contract, as I recall, and uh, just got caught in the gambling world, apparently. And, and, and now I believe that his, his, uh, his uh, sin is that he is, uh, let me just look it up here. I believe it's, it is uh, uh, health care. Yeah, let me look at it real quickly. Um, well, he owes $1,674,000 in the house. It's assessed at $543,000, and it's set for auction on May 19th. And uh, he is in federal prison right now for health care. Beep! Uh, federal prison for health care. Beep! And uh, he is uh, he's 40 years old, and he'll be in there for a while longer. It's kind of a sad story. I mean, it really is. His home is located at 3510 Northeast 156th Avenue, which is out near the uh, racetrack, the drag racetrack. So you know, it's a story we've been following. We didn't think he was going to be able to get out of it. And it's going to be um, um, interesting to see what you know, the house sells for, all that kind of sad stuff. It's known, it was known at one time as the Purple Palace around here locally because he painted it, uh, had it painted anyway, the colors of Gainesville High, which is purple and white. Got a couple of things that are interesting to me. I don't know if you know who Gary Gordon is. And Gary Gordon's father was Ira Gordon. Ira Gordon was, a, uh, I think, a psychology professor in the education department at the University of Florida. Well-known man, widely published, uh, um, very much one that students wanted to sign up and study with. And uh, uh, Ira Gordon uh, was Gary, uh, Gary uh, was the father of Gary Gordon. Now, Gary Gordon's kind of a, I always thought of him as kind of a liberal soul. I mean, bless, I know him well. He's a good kid. Now he, he's a kid to me. He's a grown man, of course, but he's a good kid. Uh, he got involved with politics. Uh, he was well known because through his father, uh, he had university ties and university ties, as we've said, can get you elected in, in Gainesville. And so it's kind of it was kind of interesting to me when he came out uh, recently in, a, in an article in the, the Gainesville Sunset um, protesting the quote unquote new American city. And the new American city is uh, really the new urbanism, wherein uh, how low can you go? Uh, Bowtie and Poe, uh, the uh, uh, boy named Lauren, he's been pushing this stuff about density, 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 and uh, let's um, uh, cram in as much stuff as we can. And Gary Gordon has taken the position that this is destroying neighborhoods and neighborhoods of where uh, the real bedrock of your community is. It's where the school districts are. Uh, it's where the home ownership is. Uh, it builds the city uh, from the ground up. And we're transforming all this into renters and making all these big rental projects five, six stories up. And we're going to squeeze out, according to Gary's, if I read his thoughts correctly here, the residential homeowners. And uh, this is this is not sitting well with uh, Gary Gordon, who, as I've always said, I've always thought of as a kind of a liberal fellow. He was a good guy. He had a band. He went out to out west, as I understand it, and, and pursued the, the musical world. I think he's back now. I, I, I saw him not too long ago at a public place. Uh, we had a nice had, had a nice brief chat. So um, he, he he it's this interesting turn of the screw here for him to come out and criticize this whole vigorous effort to as he calls it, to uh, have these five-story buildings, particularly the one that's the hottest corner here in this community right now is Northwest 23rd Avenue and 43rd Street. And that's where it, it is such an eyesore right now. Unfortunately, many of us ride by it. That's one of the ways you have to get into town. If you're coming up from our way, we generally come down 43rd uh, through the forest of uh, San Velasco and down 43rd. So we always go by that corner, which is just a gr gross eyesore. And I know many of the people live in Suburban Heights, which is a neighborhood, an old, solid neighborhood, close into the center of town, as if they've rebelled. I mean, they just can't stand the idea of this uh, potentially even uh, more intense um, renter-type inclusion-type uh, thinking that's going on in who gets to use the land as uh, 
Gary says, and Gary's right. Generally, what is going on in the commissions is who gets to use the land. And it's your land, but you have to understand it's not your land because the, gov the government is always your partner. So uh, single family neighborhoods are at risk, according to Gary Gordon, in the city of Gainesville. I couldn't agree with him more. And I want to uh, give him some kudos for stepping up and uh, writing about this because he's not thought of as a, a guy who's anti-commission, uh, a guy who's probably, he's probably pretty sure he's a Democrat. Um, and um, well, that's fine. Um, he's always been, as I say, a, a thoughtful kind of guy. He was the mayor here for a while. He was on the commission here for a while in the 80s. So he kind of knows what goes on down there in the city hall. But um, he's really frustrated. As many people are, I just want to talk about it because a bunch of it comes to my attention. What are we going to do about uh, the intensity of building and the type of building that's going on in Gainesville? Um, it's, it, you know, you can, I think you can pretty much stick a fork in Gainesville. Um, you're not going to have neighborhoods there anymore. The downtown is not going to be revitalized. Um, there's no real place to park. There's no way to get there. Uh, what, do, what they should do is take the government buildings out of downtown Gainesville, and they should take the St. Francis House out of downtown Gainesville and um, turn it into an entertainment center with great theaters, great art, and just get the government the hell out of there. But they're not going to do that. You can't do it. you got two big courthouses down there. Um, and so what are you going to be? You're going to be a, a center for a law and order in terms of uh, courthouses and record keeping and all that, or are you going to be something else? Um, the, two, the, the two really don't meet. And, and you have the restaurants that serve those people for noon, but fewer and fewer of us are going down there at night. Uh, it's, it's just too, too difficult to navigate. And it's um, uh, more and more enticing to go out to some of these newer developments on the west side of town. So uh, suburban heights here locally is kind of the focus of this controversy. If you haven't read Gary Gordon, if you don't know about who he is, you might want to take a look at his thoughts. They're almost antithetical to what uh, you would think of him as being, perhaps, and that is the son of a college professor and having a liberal bent and being uh, involved with some of the, generally the band kids that came out of here were liberal. Um, they, uh, you heard the comments the other day by Josh Taylor that one of the local studios here, I'm not going to name it, um, there's really only one um, uh, that, that would have done this. And, uh, they wouldn't uh, record Josh Taylor because Josh Taylor, way back when, had been on my show and they'd seen a um, Trump hat on somewhere on the table. So, you know, that's the type of mentality you deal with here. Uh, so it's kind of refreshing to hear Gary Gordon come out against uh, some of the crazy things that the city commission is doing and uh, what their philosophy is on uh, on ownership and renters. Well, we'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files here in just a moment, and uh, we'll get into uh, the Ministry of Truth. Huh? What a weird thing's going on there. Stay tuned. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. 
wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to the Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here now. We just did a Coach Hogg's locker room, and I hope that was helpful information for you. We'll have a great Coach Hogg's locker room next Monday with Hall of Fame umpire John Magnuson from the Spurrier studio. Well, <laughs> excuse me. We know, I guess everyone knows, and maybe not, but that Musk has taken over Twitter. I don't twit much. Uh, I guess that's the way you say it. I don't know. Uh, it's not much interesting to me. It's very short, staccato-type information. I, I I don't do it. I probably should put something up there every day to keep my name in the lights, but I don't. I don't read much of interest on Twitter, but a lot of people do, evidently, and this is considered to be a pretty powerful um, expression uh, source in the nation, and so much so that the uh, liberals who owned it, you know, kicked off anybody who wasn't liberal, pretty much. And now we have encountered this um, ourselves, as um, you know, we have been blocked occasionally from by by YouTube. Uh, we've been blocked by uh, Facebook. And uh, YouTube has an election integrity misinformation uh, statement. Now, that's basically what this is all about, in my humble opinion, is controlling the election, controlling the election narrative. So when you see uh, this term, the Ministry of Truth, you're, going, you're right back to what uh, Obama did when he took over. He hired a failed novelist, by the way put him in an office in the basement right below the Oval Office and told him to crank out a narrative that favored his positions and then to distribute it to the gullible media who would then disseminate it. And that's how it became sort of the acceptable form of the truth. And these young techies all picked it up. So YouTube has something called the election integrity misinformation. I thought I'd go through this with you. This, I maybe get, get, went through it with you once before, but now that we have a ministry of truth, we might as well refresh what this is really all about. Uh, in the YouTube world, uh, if you claim that a candidate only won a swing state in the U.S. Uh, 2020 presidential election due to voting machine glitches, uh, then you got, you got beeped. If you claim that dead people voted in numbers that changed the outcome of the 2016 President B, if you claim that fake ballots were dumped to give one candidate enough votes to win a state, uh, B, uh, if you contended, if you continue to advance quote unquote false claims, then that should be really unproven to date uh, because we were initially saddled with the notion of false claims when we said that there were people voting from the jailhouse. Oh, no, it can't be so. Uh, we had a guy down, an election official down in South Central Florida say, oh, bring it on. I don't believe it. this, that one. You know. It was a Republican, too. You know, both these guys are bad. These supervisor elections are basically lazy. Uh, they don't want to do anything beyond their narrow rain, uh, lane. They get paid way too much. Um, they just don't look. You know, so we've had a Republican guy. Oh, bring it on. I don't believe it. You know, that must, that's not true. It's fake. False. Well, we, bring, we brought it on. And so, so when you see this um, content advancing false claims, it, all it is is unproven. And they don't want to hear the proof. And they don't want to find the proof themselves. So this is a, a claim that, that uh, spreads widespread beep or um, of this kind of thing. Um, you, can't, you can't do that. You, you, can't do, you can't even bring it up. You can't talk about it. Okay. That's from YouTube. All right, that's one. There you go. There's, there's one for you. Isn't it, well, isn't it wonderful? Uh, if you define false uh, information and you look and you kind of go doing some research on this, uh, you get the following three categories of false information. You get disinformation, which is information that is false, and the person who's disseminating it knows it is false. So is it false or is it yet to this date unproven. 
I mean, he sees a lot of there's a lot of elongation in this these terms. Uh, is it a de deliberate, intentional lie? Um, this is called disinformation. A de deliberate, intentional lie. Well, at some point, that may be the actual truth, but you don't even get to talk about it because it's considered disinformation. Misinformation is information that's false, but the person who is disseminating it believes it's true. Huh? And you, you really can't do that either. So, but unless you're a Democrat, and I'm gonna get into that in just a moment, unless you're a Democrat. And boy, the record's all over the place that that's the case. Malinformation is information that is based on reality, but it's used to inflict harm. Okay, let's go. Let's go over here to um, some things that we have on the record. Okay, on the record. Uh, but it's taken a while to get it. An agency believed to be the CIA concluded. This is out of the Washington Examiner by Jerry Dunleavy. You're beginning to see more and more of this concluded the data underpinning certain Trump-Russian collusion allegations was not technically plausible, okay? And cast further doubt on claims pushed by the Clinton campaign. Huh? Really? Try talking about that and see if you don't get labeled one of these categories. Is that malinformation, misinformation, disinformation? There was a guy named Michael Sussman, who was a cybersecurity liar, a Democrat, who was indicted last September for allegedly concealing his clients. And one of his clients was guess who? None other than Hillary Clinton. Huh? 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 There was a September 2021 indictment alleging that a man named Michael Sussman lied when he said he was not providing the domain name system data allegations to the FBI on behalf of any client when he was in fact doing so on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Now, is the Ministry of Truth, I'm trying to figure out how the Ministry of Truth is gonna fit into all this. Now, this is all coming from John Durham. He is scrutinizing Sussman, all the claims that Sussman made to the CIA. It's going to take a while, you know, for this to come out. With all these oppressive, and now we've got, I, I can just tell you that I think the Ministry of Truth is an extension of these other platforms, the Zuckerbucks and these guys. I mean, they do give to the Democrat Party in enormous numbers. Uh, Soros, for example, gave a quarter of a million dollars through a pack to the Andrew Gillum campaign when Gillum was running against DeSantis. <coughs> there you go. Got it here. I got, the, I, got the, I got the campaign document to show it. He gave a quarter, $250,000 to the Andrew Gillum pack when he was running against DeSantis. So Durham also revealed, has revealed, that while the FBI did not reach an ultimate conclusion regarding the data's accuracy, or whether it might have been in whole or in part genuine, spoofed, altered, or fabricated, as it was being pushed to government agencies, the CIA concluded in early 2017 that the Russian Bank One Data and Russia Phone Provider One Data, the Alpha Bank and Yoda Phone Information, was not technically plausible and could not withstand technical scrutiny. Huh? Huh? This is all disinformation. I'm reading it. Disinformation is information that is false and the person who is disseminating it knows it is false. We got the FBI and the CIA and a presidential candidate up to their ears in this, huh? 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 
scan this article for Western uh, um, by the by the uh, Washington Examiner. John Durham has also revealed he has evidence that Joffe, who was a character involved with Clinton, exploited internet traffic at Trump Tower, Trump Central Park West Department Building, and the executive office of the president. Isn't that interesting word, exploited? The special counsel said in October that Joffe exploited his company's access to data at a high-ranking executive branch office, both in before and after the 2016 election. Huh? 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 Come on now. Mama didn't raise no fool. We know what you're up to, Biden. Huh? 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 So meanwhile, this character has done what? He's established a ministry of truth. Now it's charged, Politico says, with, quote, countering misinformation related to homeland security. Boy, there's, there's, a, there's an umbrella comment related to homeland security. Focus specifically on irregular migration. What in the world is irregular migration? And Russia. So the stated goal is of combating mis and disinformation but this is being run by people. So who objects to and labels and categorizes what is mis or disinformation is people, right? Truth experts, but the experts are people. Roger Coffell and Abigail Deverum have written about this. Now, Graham Medley is a British expert involved in UK policy response to COVID says the worst thing would be for the government to say, well, why do you tell us it could be that bad? What they did in COVID, he's saying, is they deliberately exaggerated how bad COVID was so they could never be accused of poorly preparing the government. And he says the same thing will happen to the Ministry of Truth. They will exaggerate the threat so that they're never criticized for not knowing there was a threat. This is dangerously close to creating a threat to justify your existence, is it not? So you create the threat. You create the threat at exaggerated proportions in order to justify your existence so that you can never be criticized for not giving us a heads up on the threat. This is designed to counter anything that might happen through Truth Social, which is Trump's organization, and Musk, which is Twitter. So the truth experts, truth experts at this Ministry of Truth, predictably will gra proclaim grave threats when the threats are really minor to non-existent. We've already seen it. I just went back and out of the midnight on yard and cited it for you. We've already seen it. And why is it taking so long to find it? Well, we know. We know from our own investigations. And what's going to happen and we know what's going to happen. The Ministry of Truth will become the tool of partisan political actors. So it's more important than ever that you, my students, you, my students, have a built-in crap detector, okay? A built-in crap detector so that you know when you're hearing a false note in the orchestra. Now, let me just go through. I looked this up uh, for my own effort for, so, so I, don't, I would understand it myself. How does a minister of truth operate psychologically? Well, curiously enough, immediately you run into the term gaslighting, okay? 
Gaslighting is a term that is addressing a phenomenon wherein the victim is caused, the victims are caused to doubt themselves. That's gaslighting. What the object of the gaslighting is to get the victim to start questioning his instincts and to rely more and more on the reality created by the gaslighter. So what's going to happen? And get ready for it with the Ministry of Truth. Your opinion is going to get pounded on to the place where you doubt it. And therefore, you'll be dependent upon the version from the ministry. You know, there's really nothing new to this. Obama did it to start with. It has been infecting public discourse since Obama hired the novelist in the basement. And it has been totally soaked up by the media. And it keeps me coming to the microphone to push back against it. So your thoughts, your instincts are to be gaslighted. And what will happen when you're gaslighted is your thoughts and your instincts will be minimized. You'll begin to doubt yourself. So when you're at coffee with one of your liberal friends and try to talk to that person, you're not going to have a position that is credible to the liberal friend because the liberal friend will be getting his or her opinions from the gaslighter, which in this case will be the minister of truth. In fact, you'll be made to feel that you're stupid for standing up for yourself. Now, where does this all come from? There's a whole experience. It comes from psychology, psychotherapists, who have our licensed marriage and family therapists, okay? Isn't that interesting? There is no significant difference, apparently, in the phenomenon of abuser and abusee in a marriage to abuser and abusee in, pub in political discourse. So the Ministry of Truth in this analysis is analogous to, let's say, the male who is abusing the female in marriage. But unfortunately, we don't have a family therapist. One would go, one would think, if it got bad, before one bumped the other one off, to a family therapist. Well, where is a family therapist going to come from in this ministry of truth relationship with the public? Who's going to be the family therapist? It's not going to be your press. Who's it going to be? Because you're going to be constantly whittled at, constantly abused to where you begin to doubt yourself. Or you, or you, you, you feel stupid for standing up for yourself. Another phrase apparently that these therapists have heard is gaslighters make the victims, that is, the in this case, anybody who doesn't agree with the Obama version or, in this case, the Biden version, doubt themselves. And so your memory will be messed with. And how do you mess with a memory? Well, you confuse the narrative to the extent that, well, I must have misheard it or I must have mismembered it. People, people don't keep documents let alone have documents generally to support their opinions. So the gaslighters make the victims doubt themselves. Um, this, is, this is pretty interesting stuff, and we're into heavy psychological warfare. Are, are we not? Are we not? So un unfortunately, you can not as you could in a bad marriage, in a bad marriage, theoretically anyway, uh, you could get away from the abusive relationship. 
in the ministry of truth situation, you're not going to be able to get away from the abusive relationship. You're not going to be able to do it. Because the press is not going to help you get away from it. It's simply all being put together right now by this so-called minister of truth. And if you do some background research on her, uh, she is really a character and a half. She has uh, been putting out misinformation for quite some time, uh, was a whole believer in the uh, narrative, which I just shared with you that Durham is uncovering. It's really kind of amazing that and you can see why everybody knows it, but Biden went ahead and put her in there anyway. Um, let me see if I can find out some of the stuff that she pulled. Um, maybe I got that in another article, the Midnight Auto Yard, but I'll, I'll probably, it's pretty well known. You can find that pretty easily. I think I may also have it on the computer here. Um, by the way, number, the, one, of the, one of the big enemies of all this right, right behind Trump is, of course, DeSantis. So they're, they're going to try to they're going to try to come at that, too. Um, so what they're basically got to do here, I'm just going to cut to the truth here, is to build a big lie. And uh, uh, that big lie is going to be uh, the one that's going to be perpetrated. You'll have very little pushback on Let's just read about this lady here a minute. I, I, I found the article. Nina Jankowskiewicz, Jankowskiewicz, I guess. Uh, wow. Let's just talk about her for a minute. Uh, who she is. She is the author of a report examining online mockery of Harris during the 2020 election and noted the vice president received a majority of derogatory online posts against women. Ah, and in her article, she outlined tech companies and government should work to get tech companies and government. Are you ready? Should work together using creative and technological prowess to make a pariah of online misogyny. Ah, oh, boy. Social media companies, she argued, should make the shift toward believing women, allowing them to identify and censor content. Oh boy, this is this is this is who we're going to have running it, and this is just an issue with women that she got under her, under her skin somehow, um, and she calls it gender misinformation, um, is one of the things that she's been on record for. Now, is that an immigration national security's concern? I mean, that come on, come on, um, that's just that's who you're dealing with, that's who they pick to do this. Wow, my friends. Wow, let me have a sip on this. This is this is a this is where we're headed. It's where we're headed. Well, I want to conclude by talking about what um, Wall Street Journal has called the taxpayer con of the century. Do you know I mean, the century is only 22 years old? So what is the taxpayer con of the century? Any guesses? Let me just see here. Anybody? Well, we're not going to have time to really cover that, but uh, um, it's um, winding down to the old clothes here. I'm looking at the clock. I guess I'll take it up next time. The taxpayer con of the century. Wow, wow, wow. Did you have any idea what that might be? I'll give you kind of a clue what it's going to be. It's going to be Student loan forgiveness. Wow. Wait till we cover that. Listen, I think we wound down at the end of the Award Scott Files today. I hopefully it helped you understand the world we live in a little bit better. And I want to thank our sponsors, thank our donors, and hope you have a nice day. Um, we'll be back soon. Hopefully with information will help you. We'll keep you posted on developments locally, state, and nationwide. Warthog Command Center out.